welcome to the My Family Coach podcast. I'm Claire and in each episode you'll find me interviewing a guest expert to find out more about the tricky world of child behaviour, all in handy 15 minute-ish bite-sized chunks. Then I'll send you away with three handy practical tips that you can use at home. And if this episode leaves you wanting more, you can watch, listen and read from our wide range of resources while you're on the go on the My Family Coach website. I'm joined by Carl Poupe, who is a qualified classroom teacher with a decade's experience across the primary, secondary and further education sectors. He specialises in behaviour management. He worked as a not in education employment or training, shortened to NEAT coordinator, uh, teaching students with severe social and emotional mental health issues. Carla's designed and facilitated rehabilitation classes for year eight to year 11, who have been excluded from mainstream education. We are so privileged to have you here today, Carl. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're, we're going to be talking today based on some of your um, specialisms there about supporting uh, children with uh, social, emotional, mental health uh, difficulties in the classroom. Before we crack on to that topic, uh, what, what book are you reading at the moment? Sure. So what I'm reading is Black History Month or it's, it's winding to a close of Black History Month. Yeah. I'm reading a book by a wonderful historian called David Olusonga. Um, who wrote a book called The Black and British. And he's, wrote, he's just recently released a children's book about it. So it's talking about the history of um, black people um, in the United Kingdom. And it's way before um, the Windrush generation, going all the way back to the Roman time. So it's absolutely fascinating to see the impact in terms of how different, uh, different cultures and different people have come to form Britain to what it is today. So it's a great read. That's brilliant. And I think with the... Um curriculums needing to be nice and wide as well like having children's books that actually have difference in them is so important isn't it it's absolutely important for for equality diversity and inclusion and obviously because of the events that have happened this year with George Floyd and looking at the the fallout with that I think it's a great time for education to look at the curriculum and look at how can we as you said make it wider more diverse and more inclusive and um, he's done an absolute masterful work I'm going to have to look that up and I'll, 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 I'll put it at the bottom of the podcast so we can give a plug uh, to that as well, because that sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, we're going to talk about supporting children with mental health and well, social and emotional mental health um, difficulties in the classroom. Tell us a bit about your experience, Carl, in relation to that. Sure. So as you rightly said, um, I've been teaching for roughly around 10 years and my specialism has been um, dealing with um, needs or children that have uh, social, emotional, mental health needs. Um, so in terms of, I might as well explain what a NEAT is. Um, so when we talk about not in employment, education or training, these are usually young people that are in danger of basically either dropping out of school and not completing their GCSEs for various factors or just being excluded. Um, what government research has shown us is that these children are a vulnerable group. And if they're not in some form of employment or education by the age of 18, I think they were 80 percent more likely to fall into uh, antisocial uh, behaviours. So that could be gangs, that could be drugs, that could be street violence, that could even be prostitution or grooming. So it was very, very important. What, what my department dealt with was what we call high touch intervention. So. Mm-hmm. It would sometimes go into schools as well and look at kids that were in danger of being needs, those that are just not engaging in the classroom, maybe on their last warnings or governor's warnings, and seeing if we could design plans to help them stay in school rather than start that cycle. Because these young people would often end up with bleak life outcomes mm. if they did not get 
any form of education or employment. Yeah, I mean, I my background's working in pupil referral units, and yes. I, I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times before. But as soon as that that pupil is stamped with excluded, um, it's mm. it's a hard journey from there, and the statistics speak volumes for it and people's experiences my experiences are that some actually do really well in small classes but that's actually quite a small percent um the outcomes for for lots of our young men and young women that I've worked with have been terrible catastrophic in 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 some cases and I think you know like you've rightly said it's that's that stamp of exclusion tell me more about the interventions um that you've you've run to to help kids in in mainstream school so when I left, because unfortunately, because of austerity, um, mm. uh, by funding away, um, I'm trying to be very politically of correct. Course, here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 2014, 2015, um, austerity hit, so it hit FE. So alternative provision um, was really badly hit. A lot of the youth centres and mm. all the interventions were taken away and it was reabsorbed into mainstream schooling. Um, I did a stint where I was a supply teacher, but also I landed... Um, I was in charge or I helped to run a behavior unit. So what we're looking at is things like restorative justice. Yep. We're looking at um, uh, getting them to reflect. So not only just sanctioning them, giving them inclusion, but talking to them, getting um, uh, outside agencies. So I worked with CAMS, Child Adolescent Mental Health Services. Sometimes with some young people, it's the YOT team, youth offending, the youth offending team, which is obviously part of the uh, police gang matrix. And we're just trying to basically get them to reflect on their behavior help them to make better choices. Sometimes if they're on things like reduced timetable, we could have a bit more flexibility in regards to the projects that we can run. Uh, perhaps looking at uh, not so much academic subjects. So just say, for example, they're not very good at English or maths, but they were very good with their hands. We could talk, look at plumbing. We could look at um, trade skills, mm. anything to kind of get them to re-engage. And it was more of a holistic view at the child rather than just trying to drum facts into their brain is trying to understand what makes this child tick how can we um activate their intrinsic motivation to want to do it for themselves rather than us bark at them to tell them to do it mm. obviously that meant working along with the families as well um, building up those relationships and just trying to work together to steer them on a better path but a lot of the interventions again i had a lot of flexibility both as a needs coordinator and looking at uh behavior intervention so we could design things that were more how can i say it were more I don't want to say the word engaging because I don't want to say like English and maths are not engaging, mm. but a little, a little bit more flexibility on what we can do mm. uh, in regards to uh, things. So like things like, you know, um, hip hop, Shakespeare and stuff mm. like that, things that could really engage. So it was it was a it was a great time as a, being a NICS coordinator was one of the highlights of my career. Do you think uh, quite a few people listening to this might um, be in a mainstream setting? I mean, we've got people that listen from a- APs. We've got some people in Australia and completely different settings. So how, like from your experience of working with, with those children with social emotional health difficulties, how, what have you learned that could be practically um, applied in the classroom, do you think? So one of the things in terms of like a, like a tip or like, or how to, to engage. I guess what you learn in that, in, sure. from those experiences and how that relates back to the classroom so one thing i learned um again very very special thanks to um cams child adolescent mental health services was to look at the psychology of a lot of these young people mm. what you find with a lot of children that are very very disruptive is that they often suffer some form of trauma mm. sometimes that trauma um what tends to happen, we're going deep into psychology here, but 
<laughs> we talk about emotional dysregulation. Mm. I don't want to, I don't want to confuse your, your listeners. So I want to try and make it as simple as possible. In most, well, no, I shouldn't say most households. In some households, if you've got two parents or two caregivers, grandparents, it doesn't matter, foster parents who give you that love, that support, uh, um, that can mirror your emotions back to you. So if you're hurt and they say, are you okay? Are you hurt? What that does is it creates um, uh, conditions where the child can basically emotionally regulate themselves. They take that, what we call object in psychology in themselves. So for example, if they scrape their knee and mum and dad's not home, because they've been modeled how to take care of themselves, they can do that for themselves and start to soothe themselves. And you often see that with young, young children, with younger children. Mm. So if you've got a five-year-old child and you see a little uh, a toddler, they might say, oh, don't cry. It's okay. Do you want me to kiss it better? Because they've taken that in of themselves. Mm. When you've got a young person who has uh, suffered a trauma and many things, um, many things can cause this. We call that ACE. And for the life of me, I've forgotten what ACE is and I deal with ACE all the time. Um, basically um, what that does is it, 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 interrupts their development so if you're in a household where it's very unstable where it could have a violent person in the home or somebody that's on drugs or you know neglect or and it doesn't even have to be like poverty or you know poor socioeconomic backgrounds i've seen children that have come from middle class and upper middle class backgrounds who suffer the same thing maybe their parents just very harsh what that does is it creates a trauma and i always said to my staff that pain is uh, sorry that anger is the bodyguard of pain so when you're seeing that disruption, what you have to do is you have to question where is that coming from, mm. okay? And the way of the approach I took with training my staff when I was a needs coordinator is that I said, we are like paramedics, okay? The psychologists are like the doctors. So if you've got somebody who's, you know, on a roadside, they've been badly hurt, you call the paramedics to stabilize them enough so that they, they can go to the A&E and they can get the proper help. We are not psychologists, but we need to know how to stabilize mm. and how to get them out of that emotional dysregulation or emotional hijacking, I prefer to call it. Because when you're angry, think about it, uh, listeners, when you're driving a car and someone cuts you in the road, you're painting the air blue. Um, you know, you do, you're not thinking straight, you're chasing up. Well, that's, I'm talking about myself here. Sorry, uh, Mrs. Pupe. Um, you're chasing after them. You're really angry. And it's been scientifically proven when you're really angry, you drop 10 IQ points. It's the same as being really drunk. Mm. Um, you're not thinking straight. So what you have to do is you have to try and create conditions where you can get them out of that emotional, what we call the fight or flight response and get the amygdala, which is in charge of this um, response to calm down, to soothe so that the front part of their, their head, not head, their brain, which is called the neocortex, the thinking part can reactivate. Hopefully that's just made sense. <laughs> it does. Saying. It does. You're, very, you're lovely to listen to. I'm just like, oh, this is so interesting. Like all, all the psychology behind it. And I suppose if we're thinking practically in the, the classroom, it's, it's having that, not basic understanding, I don't want to call it that, but having that understanding of the psychology of the brain and actually what yeah. those pupils with social and mental health difficulties might have been through and how that manifests in, in behaviour. And we talk loads, don't we? I mean, we, we do a similar type of job, sort of, you know, coaching people on, on behaviour, but we talk a lot about empathy. Um, yes. and, and true empathy is not necessarily being able to put yourself exactly in someone else's shoes, but just trying to understand and trying to see where that person's coming from. I know you, you'll relate to this. I'm working with a young man at the moment running interventions and, and he's in a really difficult um, home situation. I won't go into to depth because it's not really appropriate, but 
I don't say to him, I understand how you feel in your difficult home situation. Cause I don't, I live in a nice house in Essex, you know, I'm, I'm fine. Um, but I say, um, I can't understand how that feels. And for me, that's as, as close to empathy with him that I can get, but it's, sure. it's kind of just that understanding of where, where he's coming from as, as best I can. Of course. And I think just to go into that, that's why I said tactical empathy, because obviously <laughs> if you've got a young person, who is throwing a chair at somebody else in the classroom, you can't say, oh, Johnny, oh, poor Johnny. You know, obviously, and someone's bleeding on the floor, you know what I mean, like foaming at the mouth. Of course, you have to do that. There has to be boundaries, because some people think, oh, just let them do what they want. No, that's not true. It's the understanding of saying, okay, we're going to deal with this. There has to be a repercussion, but let's walk through it. That's what we do a lot in restorative justice. Let's look at what happened before. Okay, so what happened before? Oh, that person was looking at you the wrong way. Okay, what could you have done? Instead of throwing the chair, what could you have done? And it's trying to, to get them to think and, 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 and changing, using that neuroplasticity so that if the incident happens again, they can think, you know what? Mr. Pupe told me to do this rather than that. And it's helping them to correct. And again, if they're, if they're raised uh, in a place where there is those boundaries, there is that safety and security, that's what parents would naturally do or caregivers would naturally do anyway. So in a way, you're kind of, taking on that role of being that what we in psychology called a positive object someone that you think about mm. that is like a guide you know someone you know and i can get really deep in psychology yeah, i'm no. trying to avoid it as much as i can <laughs> no it's, yeah i know the format that we have where it's just short sections we can't really yeah, go into right. loads of depth it's a right. shame we have to get you back on to really go into loads of depth about the psychology it's yeah it, it's absolutely fascinating and i think you're you're mentioning about trauma and I think that the the pupils that you know some listeners might have that are posing to be the most difficult will be the ones that have faced Mm. trauma and I think it's really interesting that you mentioned about boundaries because that frustrates me as a practitioner where you know people go oh no but they've had such a difficult time and so let you know let's reduce all those boundaries but the you know part of supporting someone that has social emotional mental health needs is that actually those boundaries need to be tight and if not tighter uh, Mm -hmm. than for some other students so I think that's that's a really important point for for staff to take away sure no 100% 100% agree with you and I can give you some practical tips about that as well so yeah perfect well i'm gonna sort of move us on just to think about the the practical tips um for the end of the episode uh, there's one where you 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 mentioned it to me off air and i was like i've never heard of it being called like that so i'm really interested in your tips uh carl sure no problem so a couple of tips i'll give you i think i'll, I'll switch it up a slight bit because you, you you spoke beautifully about, about boundaries that the, one of the first tips i say to everybody especially if you're working with semh children is you need to have what i call a social contract it's basically ground rules, mm. but it's ground rules with a slight twist. It's where you talk to them and you negotiate what the rules will be. Now, I've got into many arguments with people that work in mainstream because it's like, you know, the school policy is a school policy and we have to do that. I'm like, yes, but if you're working with people that have got SEMH, you've got to understand that sometimes, and one thing I say is try and depersonalize it. It's not about you. So, for example, if you've got a student who's being, I don't know, abused by their father and, you know, every time their father raises a voice they it sparks you know it gets you know Mm. it gets them going and then you as a male teacher come and you start shouting and then they you know throw a chair and you're like that's extreme what i'm saying is you you can't think that the rules that you follow is the rules that they follow because they come from a different environment 
So what I say to my, uh, if I'm dealing with like a small class or SEMH children, I say, look, I've come here. I want to make the class as harmonious, as good as possible. I want you to have fun. I want to have fun, but I've got to make sure that we are safe. What things can we do? And we brainstorm the rules together or you take the existing policy of the school and you talk about it. You walk them through it. Mm. Because what you are doing there is you're creating a culture, right? You're creating a culture where there's clear understandings, what is expected and what you expect from them. But what you're also doing is you're giving them what is called buy-in. They feel that they're in control rather than having somebody dictate rules to them. They Mm. feel they're in control. So just say, for example, they said respect the school put or you say respect what does respect mean to you oh sir respect means you know talking to me nicely how would you feel if i spoke to you badly i'll feel angry whatnot so what should i do as a teacher to make sure you're respected well say this and say my name right and that way they feel that oh you're asking for my opinion you value what i've got to say Mm -hmm. and then you make sure whatever you put on your social contract is on the board is there and then everything you do in terms of behavior comes off that and you say john me and you agreed we talked about respect what happened there? Can you explain? Oh, I was a bit angry. And that way they're reflecting, they understand clearly, because sometimes we think the policies are great, but some, again, I'm not saying all, but with some SEMH children, they might have learning needs. They might not be able to read or understand what the policy is. I've been into schools where the policy was like a hundred words. Mm. Like, how are they meant to memorize that? My one's 10, a hundred versus 10. Which one will you memorize? Mm. So it's about creating that culture. So that's my first tip, whatever you do. And again, it's all on my website. I'll put it at the end. I've put things that on there anyway. That's my first tip. My second tip is what we call tactical praise or the Pygmalion effect. And what the Pygmalion effect means, um, and you can look this all up. The Pygmalion effect is basically people tend to live up to what you expect of them. What does that mean? If, for example, I say to a child, you're a monster, you're a demon, you're horrible, I hate you, you're horrible, and then in 15, 20 years time, they grow up and they stab someone to death. You might say to yourself, where did that come from? But you've already given them that expectation. Mm-hmm. And what you sometimes see with children with SEMH needs is they've got very low self-esteem. So if you're constantly, imagine if they've come from science, maths, geography, and they've been told they're useless, you're not going to do anything. And then they walk into your classroom. And then you're saying the same thing. You're cementing that idea in their mind. So what I say to them is, Try and give them something to aspire to. Give them a vision to aspire to. And practically, I had an SEMH class who would, I had to teach English to. And they, they dropped out and they said, we're not going to do this. I'm rubbish at it. And I, I called the class the scholars group. And I said, we're all scholars now. And you, and I put pictures of university students. And I said, mm. you can be one of those things too. And we addressed each other as scholars. And I said, we're going to read together. And we're going to do this together. And I gave them a vision. I gave them a different perception of themselves that there was not given to them. And you as a teacher have that power. So if you've got that same kid that's been kicked out of all classes and you say, you know what, you're capable of doing science, you're capable of doing maths, you're capable of doing PE. And I believe in you. You don't know how powerful that is because you then become the positive object to that young person. So if they've got, I don't know, their parent or whoever's looking after them saying you're garbage, they're going to remember you, Mr. Pupe or Mrs. Smith, as the one that said they can believe in them. So it's counteracting that voice in their head that tells them they can't do things. And it's always trying to catch them doing good. I know it's hard with difficult kids, but if you've got a kid that doesn't take off their jacket and they come in class and they take off the jacket, I'm like, <laughs> oh, thank you. You've taken off the jacket. Fantastic. Well done. Brilliant. Because you are, you are changing the narrative about them when you're mm. doing tactical praise. Is there any more time? Because I know time is... <laughs> no, go on. Do the last one. I, lo- I love the last okay. one. 
last one is literally called last. Um, and this was a technique I learned in cells rather than, it's a framework. So last is a framework that I use to, uh, if you've got a child that's emotionally hijacked or emotionally dysregulated and you want to basically help them to calm down, to soothe them and to help them to start thinking straight, then I use this framework. Now, obviously, if a kid's punched up another kid and you say, oh, how are you feeling today, Johnny? You know, that's not the right time to do it. Maybe no. he has to go, you know what I mean? Maybe he has to go off and chill out or Megan, how do you feel? You know, you ripped out a bit of her hair. How do you feel, Megan? No, that's not the right time to do it. But obviously they get a sanction. You'll take them to call off. But to deal with the sanction, this is great for dealing with sanctions. This is what I'll do. So really super quickly. Last, number one. So it's four stages. L is to listen. And now when you're listening, you're using truly empathetic listening. And how you show your listening is by what is called mirroring. All right. So, for example, if you said, if a child said, I hate this school and I, I, and I, I, I hate this school and I never wanted to be here. What you could then do is you could say you hate this school. You never wanted to be here. Now, what that does when you mirror somebody is it shows that you're building a it builds rapport with them. So it says, oh, he's trying to understand me. He's trying to get me. B, it forces them to activate the neocortex, the front part of their brain, because you've asked them a question. They have to think and engage that part of their brain. And it calms down their amygdala, which is the emotional part or the, what we call the mammalian brain and the emotional part of the brain. All right. So. When you're mirroring, it's simple as mirroring. You don't have to go into deep psychologist, uh, psychology. And in fact, this is what therapists use. This is a technique they use. And it forces you to think. So that's L, all right? Listening, trying to find out what is the core of the issue. Because sometimes the issue is not the issue, if that makes any sense, mm. right? So he looked at me or um, that teacher, I don't know, I don't know, the teacher took my book away and that's why I threw the chair. But when you start going deeper and deeper, maybe it's, mm. you know, something happened at home. So last is a great way by mirroring. Mm. Okay. Second one is acknowledge. Okay. To acknowledge means to not, not, well, I call it acknowledge or apologize, but acknowledge means to be empathetic, to understand or try and understand Mm. how they feel. And it's as simple as saying, it seems like you're quite angry or it seems like, you know, something Mm. else is going on here. Okay. And what you're doing is, is, it's called a label. It's an emotional label. You're labeling their feelings and again it goes into that whole rapport piece it goes into that whole feeling of understanding and what you should you you will find if you do the mirroring and the labeling they'll start to calm down because they can see that you're trying to understand where they're coming from and sometimes they might say you know what sir or miss you know what? i don't know what came over me when when they say things like that or you know what i wasn't just i was out of my own head you know that they've calmed down okay the third part is called um solve or send and what we're taught in cells was that um, you may not be able to solve the problem, but you always have to resolve it. Give a, a resolution. And in practical terms, for example, if there's a sanction, you threw the chair, there has to be a sanction. But what can we do to avoid this happening again? What can we do? Let's walk through the problem. So at least we can take, I always say, we've got to take something out of it. If you leave them hanging in the air, and a lot of teachers do this all the time, you know, you've been bad, you've got a sanction done. And you don't try and resolve it or close it off. What ends up happening is that it's not closed. So that same child comes into your classroom. They're looking at you like, oh, sir was the one that gave me the hour detention. You're not even talking to them. And it becomes a vicious cycle. Mm. Always try and end it. So I say this sanction was this sanction for today. And we've walked through it. You're going to serve an hour detention. But when you come into my class tomorrow, it's going to be a different. It's a new day. Because then the child knows there's a definitive end. Rather than thinking, oh, this teacher's always going to victimize me. If that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it does, yeah. And the last one is thank. 
It's very, very simple. Thank the child for having the interaction. If they've sat with you, or the student, should I say, if they've sat with you through it, what you are showing is A, courtesy, and B, you're giving a positive response to a negative outcome. Now, there's been a research study saying that we as human beings in our everyday life in the UK, we receive seven negative mm. uh, stim- uh, simulations to one. What does that mean? You wake up, the news, oh, murder, death, killing. Someone mm. cuts you up in the road. So your thank you might be the only thank you that they might receive the whole day, you know? And you're showing that positivity, even in that difficulty. And it's mm. worked an absolute charm with me whenever I've had to deal with students and we've had to talk through something. So that's the framework I use that's lovely i really like that and having a nice mnemonic to help people remember that one is that on your website carl as well website um am i allowed to say yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, do, <laughs> I yeah, yeah. break any laws here blogging <laughs> laws um so um i wrote a book so the only thing that uh, i didn't say was i wrote a book called the action hero teacher yes. now um available on amazon if you go to my website it's very very simple www.actionheroteacher.com it's got the link to the book on amazon there and i also got a blog that i update weekly which won our award for one of the top 10 education blogs in the uk by vulio uh, a marketing company and i've got lots of free stuff there so if you're thinking and saying oh i need to know more head to the website and everything will be there for you that's brilliant thank you so much carl and um i'm uh, i have to admit to the listeners that i wrote carl in about 15 minutes ago <laughs> uh, to do uh, the podcast so uh, he had no time to do any prep whatsoever but it, it's been absolutely fascinating and i've learned a couple of terms you know um f- from chatting to you and yeah really really interesting stuff so thank you so much for your time thank you so much i appreciate it all right take care carl chat soon You've been listening to the My Family Coach podcast. Thank you for joining us as we lift the lid on the challenging world of child behaviour. There's heaps more helpful advice for all your parenting needs on the My Family Coach website. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.